0: All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 42. And to get us started, let's keep in mind where we're at in the flow of the story. So we are in the second major teaching block in the Gospel of Matthew, And in the original setting, Jesus is sending out the 12. He's actually deemed them now for the first time as not just 12 disciples, but 12 apostles. And he's now commissioning them to carry on and expand his own kingdom ministry to the villages of Israel. So we looked at that specifically in chapter 935 through 1015. Then in our last recording, we saw in verses 16 through 23, how even though his initial ministry is just for Israel, During Jesus' earthly ministry, he knows he's going to send them beyond that. And so in 16 through 23, he prepares them for a wider ministry, even among the Gentiles. And he knows that that's going to entail opposition, that living on mission for Jesus will lead to persecution and opposition and so 16 through 23 prepared them for that. Now here beginning in verse 24 Jesus comments actually seem to open up a little bit more a little bit more broadly and go more general to just beyond the 12 themselves, to like any disciple who's trying to live faithfully and obediently and on mission for Jesus. And so we see here more phrases like the disciple or everybody. And so we're broadening out the teaching about living uh, on mission with and for Jesus in the world. And so these words speak to all of us who are trying to live faithfully as disciples in general. And he starts in verse 24 with a basic truth about discipleship, and then he applies it to them and to us in a bit of a surprising way. So verse 24 and 25 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he may become like his teacher and the slave like his master. This was just the way discipleship worked in their world. The goal of a disciple who attached themselves to a particular rabbi was to become like the rabbi, not just in his understanding of the scriptures and the Torah, but in order to actually apply it to their life the way he did, to embody that rabbi's yoke, his way of life. That was the goal. And so the goal of discipleship was not just to know what the rabbi knew, but to be what the rabbi was, to become like him. And Jesus just takes that general truth that everyone was familiar with and says, that's the way it is. All right, we know that. He even takes the idea of like servants and says a servant who admires his master doesn't try to usurp his place, just wants to be like him because he admires him. So this is the idea that being a disciple entails imitating the rabbi, the master, becoming like him. That's the basic idea. But then Jesus applies this here to his disciples in a bit of a surprising way. Look what he says in the second half of verse 25. He says, If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they insult the members of the household? In the imagery, the analogy, Jesus is the head of the house, right? He's the one who's in charge. So if people have slandered Jesus and call him Beelzebul, they're going to do it to the very people that are part of his household, his disciples, his followers. That's the idea. So now what Jesus is saying is part of becoming like our rabbi is becoming like him in rejection and insults and opposition. That's the idea. That's the point he's making. Disciples become like their rabbis. Well, that means if they called the the rabbi Beelzebul, they're going to call you Beelzebul, and they're going to reject you and insult you as well. Now, what is this Beelzebul that they're referring to? Well, the exact origin of the word is uncertain. In Matthew 12, 24... As well as in Mark 3, Beelzebul is referred to as the ruler or prince of demons. And that seems to have been a common idea. In fact, there's a, a Jewish writing from the time period called the Testament of Solomon. And it refers to Beelzebul at the same way as the prince of demons and describes his activity causing havoc in the world. It seems to have been a term, a way to refer to the arch enemy of God, that is to Satan or the devil. And we'll actually see an episode in chapter 12 where they accuse Jesus of doing ministry and miracles by the power of the devil. That's the idea. If they're going to call the master of the house, Jesus himself, our rabbi, the devil or Satan or Beelzebub, well, guess what? You can expect them to be opposed to you as well, to reject you and all of that. Then Jesus instructs disciples not to be afraid of them, even though that's the case, even though they're going to treat you that way, don't be afraid of them. In fact, as we read the next few verses, pay attention, because what you'll see is Jesus repeats that idea of don't be afraid three times and gives several reasons why. Look what he says in verse 26. Do not fear them. This is that first statement. Do not fear them. He'll say it again in 28, say it again in 31. Don't fear them. And who's the them? Well, it's those who ridicule and oppose and uh, persecute his disciples. So don't fear them. Then he gives a reason. For there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. It starts with four. That's explaining. He's giving a reason. And the idea is that God, in his time and in his way, he will actually make it clear who's teaching the truth. Who's right? There'll be nothing concealed that will not be revealed. There'll be nothing hidden that will not be known. Like God's going to sort it all out. And he's going to bring the truth to light. And ultimately, that will happen at the final judgment. It'll be perfectly clear who's with God and who's not with God at the final judgment. God's going to sort it all out. He'll bring the truth to light. He'll make all things clear. So don't fear them. Instead, Continue going about the mission of proclaiming Jesus and his message. Look at verse 27. What I tell you in the darkness, tell in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. The idea is is that, look, you just keep going about the mission... God's going to sort out uh, the truth from everybody. So you keep going about the mission, which you hear me speaking literally to people who are sitting in the campfire with them, right? And all that sort of stuff, or sitting in a house when it's night outside. What I tell you in the darkness, you proclaim it out there in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, you stand on the rooftops. In other words, whatever Jesus tells you in private, uh, you go out there and you make it clear. You continue the mission of proclaiming Jesus' message that he has revealed in his word. Then Jesus restates the call not to be afraid and gives another reason. Look at verse 28. And don't be afraid of those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, don't be afraid because the the people that are opposing you, all they can do is kill the body. That's the worst they can do. They can kill the body, but they have no ability to destroy your soul, your actual life, your whole being, yourself. They can't get rid of yourself because God's ultimately in charge of that. And that's the idea. So instead, fear God. Fear God because he has ultimate authority and responsibility for people's destiny, for their well-being. He's the one who has authority and power to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell, in the ultimate destiny of people. And guess what? The one who has this very kind of authority, this one whom you should have a holy respect for, he also cares deeply for you. Look what he says in verse 29. Are two sparrows not sold for an Assyrian? What's an Assyrian? Uh, this translation doesn't even translate the word here. They just put it out there in English. And Assyrian referred to one of the smallest coins in the Roman world. So the idea is that, look, look, two sparrows are sold for a penny. That's the idea. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, God is completely aware of what happens with the sparrow. He knows their situation. He sees it. And they're this tiny, cheap little bird. How much more is he going to pay attention to you? That's the idea. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 30 and says, but even the hairs of your head are all counted. That is, even like the smallest, seemingly least significant part of us, it's known by God. He knows the details of our life. And so what's the conclusion? Well, look at verse 31. The conclusion is, do not fear. Do not fear. You are more valuable than a great number of sparrows, than a whole flock of sparrows. You have way more value than that. Your God knows you. He sees you. He needs you. He values you. He'll take care of you. So Jesus emphasized it. Don't fear them. Instead, here's what Jesus wants his disciples to do. Look at verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before people, that's the idea of acknowledging, agreeing with Jesus and his ministry and his message and acknowledging him, right? So everyone who confesses me before people, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. You acknowledge me on earth among people, I will acknowledge you before God himself. But whoever denies me before people, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. And so our healthy fear of God, And our confidence in God's intimate care for us can lead us to openly confess Jesus to people. But denying Jesus, if we go that way and deny Jesus in fear, then that means being denied by Jesus before God. So Jesus wants us just to continue to stand for him, acknowledge him, testify about him in whatever ways we get before people. And then Jesus comes back to the very serious reality that makes these words of challenge and encouragement so necessary that his coming into the world causes division and conflict. Look at verse 34. Don't think that I came, that is that he has come originally, right? Like, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace peace, but a sword. It's like a proverbial saying. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. But this proverbial saying underscores the challenge of discipleship. Like We know in one sense, Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Think, for example, of the angels at his birth, right? Announcing peace on earth, goodwill to men. And that's certainly Jesus' ultimate goal. And even for those of us who trust him, right? He brings us peace with God and peace, shalom with each other. But The current world is not all it's supposed to be. The current world is still, if you will, contested territory. It's a battleground, not a playground. And therefore, there's going to be hostility and tension and opposition. And so allegiance to Jesus can, allegiance to Jesus, as he's told us, will turn people against you. That's just kind of part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so, don't think I came to be bring peace on the earth. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's like, my coming actually divides people, creates conflict, and creates um, hostility between people because of their loyalty to me. And so, Jesus explains what he means in verse 35 by his coming, bringing a sword. He says, for, notice that, circle that, that means he's explaining what he just said. For, I came to turn a man against his father and a daughter Against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be the members of his own household. In other words, family discord and hostility is going to be a natural consequence of some people choosing to follow Jesus and other people rejecting Jesus. That's the idea, and it's going to happen within your own household, within your own extended family, within uh, your family unit. And these words of Jesus here in verses 35 and 36, they actually echo Micah chapter 7, verse 6. And there in Micah 7, the prophet Micah bemoans the unfaithfulness of Israel and the disobedience of Israel. And basically what Micah says there is like, so how can you trust anyone? You don't know who's loyal to Yahweh and who's not. You can't trust anyone. You can't trust your wife. You can't trust your father. You can't trust your daughter. You can't trust anyone. And so by recalling these words from Micah 7, what Jesus is doing is he's saying that the situation really continues to be the same with his disciples. Loyalty to Jesus is loyalty to Yahweh, but not everyone is going to choose Jesus. And therefore, their own family will turn against them. And that means that disciples must be prepared to demonstrate absolute loyalty to Jesus alone. Look at verse 37. He says, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Loyalty to Jesus surpasses loyalty to family. Loyalty to Jesus surpasses loyalty even to your parents. In a Jewish culture like the first century world where Jesus says this, as in many Middle Eastern cultures still to this day, family loyalty, especially loyalty to your parents, that was like sacred and untouchable. And yet it's not for Jesus. And notice Jesus' words are not focused on a religion, right? They're focused on Jesus himself. He says, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love son of daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. It's focused on Jesus. And that says something huge about Jesus' own self-understanding. Just imagine, like just imagine standing there. And here's this young 30-something Jewish man who looks like just your ordinary Jewish man, right? Just normal Jewish guy, young guy saying that I'm more important than your mom. I'm more important than your dad. I'm more important than your daughter. I'm more important than your son. And so in their culture, that was like sacred and untouchable. But the reality is, in whatever culture you find yourself, those are startling words, surprising words that Jesus is saying. And his point is that love for and loyalty to Jesus must surpass whatever Whatever culture you find yourself in, whatever that culture's greatest loyalties are, that the greatest loyalty in life is Jesus, and we must be loyal to to him at all costs, even in the face of rejection, ridicule, opposition, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, or whatever else it might be. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 38 and says, like, he must even be more important than our own life. Look at verse 38. And the one who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The idea of taking up your cross, everyone knew what that meant. When he said those words, they could picture it. They had seen crucifixions. They had heard the agonized screams of crucifixion victims as they slowly died while hanging on a cross. They knew what it meant. And so when he says the one who does not take up his cross, that's as in the famous words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that's a call to come and die die to yourself, die to your own ambitions, die to your own aims and your own life, and follow Jesus. We are no longer in charge of our life. Jesus is, and thus we must follow him. And he says, the one who doesn't do that is not worthy of me. In fact, he goes on in verse 39 and says, the one who has found his life will lose it. And the one who has lost his life on my account, will find it. In other words, you've built up your own life. You've found your own life. You've secured your own life, saved your own life. You've made your own way in this world, right? Jesus says you're, you're ultimately going to lose that. But the one who has given up his life, handed it over his life to Jesus, lost his own life for my sake or on my account, he's the one who will find it. And when a person does that, when they When they trade their own life for the sake of Jesus and decide they're going to follow Jesus, they're going to listen to him and they're going to let him be in charge. When that happens, they are so connected with Jesus. Then look what Jesus says in verse 40, happens for those who receive them. Not just oppose them, those who actually receive them. Verse 40 says, and the one who receives you receives me and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. That they are so interconnected. Disciples who have given everything up to follow Jesus are so interconnected with Jesus that to receive a disciple of Jesus is now to receive Jesus himself. And since Jesus is so interconnected with God the Father, to receive Jesus is actually to welcome God. In other words, again, here you have this 30-year-old man saying that if you receive me, you're actually receiving God. That now this is where God is found in Jesus, connected to Jesus. And this provides really another motivation or another reason for continuing to confess Jesus and live for him without fearing those who oppose. Our life and our identity and our mission is tied up with Jesus and thus with God the Father. And therefore, we will testify to him and let him take care of the outcomes. Jesus then continues this theme of receiving those who carry out Jesus' mission with three little statements uh, that seem to represent specific disciples living for Jesus. He talks about a prophet, talks about a righteous person, and he talks about a little one. This is what he says. He says, the one who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person in the name of a righteous person shall receive a righteous person's reward. And then verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones just a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, truly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. And that, that last one is a little amplified, but it can be a little confusing because the little ones, we hear that and maybe we immediately think children. But here it seems to contrast with prophet and righteous person. And we'll see later when Jesus talks about little ones in chapter 18, he means lowly ones. And that seems to be the idea here, that a prophet has status and authority. A righteous person right, has standing, and they could easily be respected. But what about just a small, ordinary, lowly disciple who has no status, who has no clout, who has no standing? Well, even then, showing care for and hospitality to a disciple like that God will reward somebody for that. And so whether that disciple is a prophet, whether that disciple is a well-known righteous person, whether that disciple is just an ordinary lowly disciple, whatever you want to call him, a little one, um, that receiving them, welcoming them, showing hospitality to them leads to uh, being rewarded and honored by God. That's the technical end Of This mission speech, but look at verse 11 of chapter one, which we'll pick up there next week. It says when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to the 12 disciples, he went on from there and began to teach and that reminds us of the original context. These were addressed primarily to the 12 preparing them for mission. And it also illustrates this is the standard way Matthew has chosen to arrange his gospel these big speeches, and then this little tagline, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And so uh, second major teaching block is over here in chapter 10. And let's just offer some reflections before we leave it. And so from this last little section that we looked at in this recording, um, I would say a key reflection is that living for Jesus requires courage, entrusting ourselves to him, entrusting ourselves to his care, right, to his knowledge of us and knowing that we're valuable to him and we're precious to him, knowing therefore that our future and our well-being is cared for by him. And so we go about our life with this deep, sense of honor and respect what jesus calls fearing him right like fear him not those who could just harm the body like we're going to entrust ourselves fully to god and we have this deep sense of respect and honor for him so that takes courage in this world but we know that god is for us and therefore we can live courageously and i would also say that we should from this text remember that to be a disciple means living for him completely taking up the cross renouncing our own life, like renouncing our life, our aims, our ambitions, right? Like our life now is tied up with Jesus. Jesus is the highest priority. Nothing else is even close. Jesus is the absolute loyalty. Nothing else is even close. That's what it means to be a disciple. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The listener's commentary is made possible by the generous support of dozens of people just like you. So to those of you who make this ministry possible, thanks a ton for your support. God is indeed bearing good fruit from it. And if you have been blessed or impacted in some way by the listener's commentary, could I just ask you to prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters as the ministry continues to expand. There's things that are just hard to keep up with or more that I want to get done. And uh, your support would make all of that possible. So uh, in advance, let me just say thanks a ton for your support.